If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. I did not write down the page number, so if somebody gets there from the Pew Bible, can you holler it out? Leviticus 23, it's toward the 101, thank you. Page 101 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Or you can just grab a Bible app, and uh, maybe it'd be a little bit easier to find it there, but let me pray quickly. Lord, we pray now as we come to your book that you would bring life where there is not life. You would shed light into our hearts, those of us who are believers, that we would see the triumphant, resurrected Christ in all of his glory and beauty, that we'd understand that this, this victory story was baked in from the beginning of time. I pray that you would give us faith this morning, give us eyes to see for the glory of your son. Amen. So, yeah, you heard me right a minute ago when I asked you to turn to Leviticus. We are spending Easter in Leviticus. Please don't walk out on me now, especially if you know your Bibles. You're a little bit confused right now of how we could possibly be spending Resurrection Sunday in Leviticus. Uh, I have honestly never heard of an Easter Sunday spent in Leviticus, uh, so let's all pray right now that it doesn't flop, okay? Okay. Do you remember these from like the early to mid-90s, these magic eye images? Could you guys click on that first slide for me? And the next slide. (laughs) Thank you. Do you guys remember these? Who has seen one of these before? Nice. About half of us. I will, uh, I'll give you 10, I'll give you 30 seconds and then 10 points to the first person who can get it. Let me get out of the way. And maybe it's too far away. Maybe your eyes won't be able to. Too far away? Maybe I'll text it to you later. Anybody got it? I mean, you could probably make an educated guess and be pretty safe. Hey, there it is. Ten points to Sarah. Well done. If you didn't know any better, and even if you've never heard of Magic Eye, you'd think that you're staring at a meaningless set of random patterns and colors, right? Um, For some of you, for all of us apparently, literally nothing happened. Maybe if it was a little bit closer to your face, uh, you would have been able to discern what the image was. Um, And if it was closer to your face, you'd be able to, to discern a 3D image, Jesus on the cross, right about as the spear is about to enter his side. Now, as a child, I stunk at these things so bad. Uh, My dad would say, Josh, do you see it? No, dad, I don't see it. Now do you see it? No, I still don't see it. As I've aged, you'll all be glad to know that I have since conquered my inability to be able to locate these magic eye images, an accomplishment that I'm sure you're very proud of in me. But as we stare into the text of Leviticus this morning, penned thousands and thousands of years ago, I think we too will begin to see a beautiful 3D image that we might not have expected arising out of the text. If we didn't know any better, looking at Leviticus 23, it would probably all seem a bit mundane to us, maybe even meaningless to a bunch of Americans in 2022. The simple strokes that make up the words on the page may appear to present mere ancient Jewish fact, Jewish history. 
But I think as we stare deeply into it, whether you're a Christian or not this morning, we will begin to discover a really clear 3D image appearing. And if you haven't seen it before, it's going to hit you like the first time you saw the image arise up out of a magic eye picture. Like, no way! That was there the whole time, baked into that image? you got to be kidding me. If you're not a Christian this morning, and I suppose that there will be some of us in here who would not consider ourselves Christians, I hope you come out of our time together a little bit intrigued, just a little bit intrigued about this ancient, sometimes disturbing, curious, wildly popular, polarizing, glorious, mysterious, beautiful book. Just a little bit curious this morning. So let's jump in, if I can pull your attention away from the screen, because some of y'all are still trying to see Jesus on there. <laughs> Trust me, he's there. Um, and we're going to take a look at Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Convocations are like get-togethers, gatherings. Holy gatherings, they are my appointed feasts. So Leviticus 23 spells out the seven major feasts that the people of Israel would celebrate each year. Toward the end of each calendar year, during all the hustle and bustle of Christmas, the following year's calendars arrive. You probably experience this each year. Maybe you even put one under the tree for someone in your family. And these calendars almost always indicate when the following year's holiday seasons are going to take place. So you might look on the calendar and see which week Easter is going to be on. Or you might look to see if we're in a leap year. Or you might check to see which day your birthday is on and seeing if you've lucked out and having a weekend birthday for that year, right? Well, Leviticus 23 is God's annual save the date calendar. It's his postcard as a warning or an instruction about all of the holy days, or we might say holidays, all of the holidays that his people were to celebrate. Now, we're going to look at these holidays with two distinct sets of lenses, the original audience lenses and then the Jesus lenses. When we put on our original audience lens crafters, we want to really understand how the original audience would have understood these uh, the, uh, Leviticus 23, how they would have understood it and they would, how they would have put it into practice. But then when we look back through the Jesus lens, we want to see how he, on the scene thousands of years later, would have made sense of all of it and brought it together into focus, the 3D image rising. And it's when we put on these special Jesus lens crafters that we will see that 3D image popping up off the page. So before Moses sat down to to write Leviticus 23 for us uh, to describe the feasts, uh, he sort of set out this foundational feast. Uh, All of the other feasts would build up off of this foundation. The other feasts would happen once a year. This other celebration would happen once a week. This foundation is called Sabbath. Verse 3 describes it, if you look down at your text with me. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, a holy get-together. You shall do no work. The word Sabbath comes to us from the Hebrew word Shabbat. It literally means to stop. The Sabbath is simply a whole entire day to stop, to stop working, to stop wanting, to stop worrying, to just Stop. Shabbat can also be translated as 
to delight. It's like a two-sided word, like a, like a coin. To stop and to delight. To cease and then to celebrate. These are the two ingredients that make up the foundation of all of the Hebrew feasts that we're going to read about. So in the Sabbath, we find two common features that we'll find in all of the festivals. The people would cease from work and celebrate God's provision. Cease from work, celebrate God's provision. The Sabbath is an invitation from God to stop and then to enter into his delight. This will be the paradigm that all of the feasts follow. Stop and delight, cease and celebrate. Think of how the original Sabbath command would have hit the Israelites. If you don't know their story, it's okay. I'll give you a quick recap here. They'd been captive and enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. Generation upon generation has been enslaved to a lifetime of slavery in the brutal Egyptian regime. And then through some pretty crazy circumstances that we'll get to in a minute here, uh, God brought about their relief from this bondage. So they exited bondage. And now through this new commandment of Sabbath that happens just after they come out of Egypt, God says, listen, I am giving you seven and a half weeks of mandatory vacation every year. You may not work on these days. Hey, slave who has been working 365 days a year for 430 years, your kids and your grandkids and great-grandkids, all of you people, you may not work seven and a half weeks out of the year. This would have been huge for them, an amazing blessing to them. Now, maybe like in our fast-paced Western society, a forced or commanded ceasing from work seems overly oppressive. I don't know how it hits you, but God intended the Sabbath to bless his people. It's like commanding me to eat a white lightning donut from Yum Yum Donuts, right? You could command me that until you are blue in the face, but for me, it will never be burdensome, only delightful. Have we had white lightning from Yum Yum? Oh, not enough of y'all. You need to head there after, uh, after we're done today. So the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, sets the baseline for our discussion of all the following feasts. They would stop and delight for an entire day. And don't forget here, we're looking for an image to sort of rise up out of the text this morning. So let's look at the first actual festival, the one, uh, one of the festivals that happened once a year versus once a week, like Sabbath. So the first one here is in verses 4 and 5. It's the, it's the Passover. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, is the Lord's Passover. So the first annual festival on the Hebrew calendar was Passover, which dates back to Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites, like we talked about a minute ago, were slaves in Egypt, and so God sends these 10 plagues, these 10 ways to get his people out from under bondage in, in Egypt to secure their release. And the 10th and final plague involved the killing of every firstborn son in all of the land. It was brutal, violent, bloody, but there was a way to escape death. Every single firstborn would die unless... Unless you had the smeared the blood of a lamb on your doorposts, then the angel of the Lord, when he saw the blood, would pass over, pass over, pass over that house, and the firstborn son would be spared. So during Passover, the people stopped to celebrate God's deliverance of the firstborns from death. The second feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verses 6 to 8. Look at verse 6. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For... 
Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread began the day after Passover. And if you track with me here, you'll notice that a lot of their festivals overlap one another. During this time, the Israelites would not eat any leavened bread. Leaven is just like another word for yeast, uh, which would cause the bread to rise. So during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the people stopped to celebrate God's deliverance from Egypt when their ancestors were forced to bake bread quickly without adding yeast in order to leave town quickly. So the Passover is on the 14th, and then now the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th. Third feast, the Feast of the first fruits. Look at verse 10, about halfway through. You shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. So first fruits occurred the day after the first day of unleavened bread. Hopefully you can follow with me on the screen behind me. I know we can get a little complicated here. The festival of first fruits marked the beginning of the harvest season. This was a time when the first sheaf of the grain harvest was offered to the Lord in a way of worship. So like for me, growing up in Florida, it would have been like offering the first orange. Or for Miriam, growing up in Atlanta, it would have been like offering the first peach. Uh, I don't know what it would be in Philly, maybe like offering the first cheesesteak of the eagle season or something. I don't know. But the people would bring their first sheaf of the harvest to the priest who would then wave it in the air before the Lord symbolizing God's acceptance of the people. During the Feast of first fruits, the people stopped to celebrate their acceptance with God on account of his grace. Fourth, the Feast of Weeks. Look at verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, and then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. So here we are, seven weeks to the day after the Feast of first fruits. The Israelites celebrated the Feast of Weeks. It's named this because of the seven weeks between it and the Festival of First Fruits. Years later in the New Testament, this festival was called Pentecost. You might recognize that term more than the Feast of Weeks. And you might recognize that prefix penta and Pentecost. Think like five, like the Pentagon, five-sided building. The word Pentecost comes from the Greek word for 50 because it is the 50th day after the beginning of first fruits. During the Feast of Weeks, the people stopped to celebrate God's physical provision. Fifth, the Feast of Trumpets. Look at verse 24. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets. So the Feast of Trumpets kicked off the next set of festivals. Maybe like a, a harvest festival would be for us where it would kick off the Thanksgiving season and, and Advent and Christmas. More than anything, during the Feast of Trumpets, the people stopped to gather in preparation for the coming Day of Atonement. And this day was announced by a series of trumpet blasts. Six, clicking right through here, the Day of Atonement. Nine days later came the Day of Atonement. Look at verse 27. Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. This was the only day in the entire year that the high priest was permitted to enter the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. One day a year, he gets to uh, get in close to God. And the imagery of this festival is super cool. Uh, as part of the sacrifice, this high priest would take two goats with him. He'd slaughter one, kill one, to satisfy the wrath of God against the people's sin, goat number one. And then he would place his hands on the other goat. They called it the scapegoat. And he'd confess the sins of the people with his hands on that goat, which symbolized the transfer of the people's sin onto that goat. And then they would send that goat out into the wilderness 
never to be seen again, symbolizing that the people's sins had been transferred onto that goat and that they were never going to be seen again by God. So these two goats might give you a little bit of a a hint about what image you might see popping up off the page. Sin atoned for and sin taken away, right? On the day of uh, of atonement, the people stopped to celebrate a big fancy word, propitiation. All this means is that God transfers his wrath do the people sin onto the scapegoat, and the scapegoat runs away. The final feast, the Feast of Booths. Booths, not booze, all right? Maybe there were some there, I don't know, but we're talking about the Feast of Booths. Look at verse 40. And you shall take on the first day the branches of palm trees and the boughs of leafy trees and the willows of the brook. Skip to verse 42, and they're going to use all those things. Uh, to build booths. And then verse 42, you should dwell in booths for seven days. Skip to verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So this feast, the Feast of Booths, meant it was time to party. This was an eight-day, all-day festival, and it was the grand finale of the Hebrew calendar. It would have been like in our late September, early October time. It would have totally been circled on everybody's calendars for the entire year leading up to that festival. I think Feast of Booths would be equivalent to like our Christmas. The kind of emotions that evokes in you would have evoked the same kind of emotions for them for the Feast of Booths. Everyone got in on the action. They all came to town for this one. All season long, you could hear them singing, I'll be home for Feast of Booths. (laughs) You can count on me to do something stupid like that. Um... This festival was super cool if you're into camping. If you're not, I don't know what to do for you. But th- throughout the week and all around town, down dark alleys and on top of flat uh, rooftops and in the town square were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these little pop-up tents. It must have been quite a sight in town during that week. And the point of this festival was to help the people remember how God protected them during and then eventually rescued them from their wilderness wanderings when they were in constant need of building up shelters to protect them from the weather. This was the most festive of all the feasts. The list of sacrifices for the Feast of Booths, which you can find in Numbers 28 and 29, is much longer than all of the other festivals. This would have been like heaven for all of us meat smokers, all right? Meat smoking all around town. During the Feast of Booths, the people stopped to celebrate God's deliverance from Egypt and consequent provision in the wilderness. All right, we blitz through those, but so what, right? What does this have to do with any of us? Maybe so far you've only seen random patterns and colors and lines, but you're like, there ain't no 3D image, bro. What are you talking about? Perhaps you're at a loss as to what relevance the ancient Hebrew holiday calendar has for you. Listen, much in every way, whether you're a Christian or not. When you look at these festivals through the Jesus lens crafters, this will be one of the most staggering things, the most staggering chapters in the Bible that you have ever read. I'm serious. It's like in National Treasure when Nicolas Cage puts on those uh, specs to see the secret message that was hidden there on the Declaration of Independence. Remember that moment? Man, I love National Treasure. I know Nicolas Cage gets a lot of hate, but not from me. It's a great movie. So 
Let me just help us put on our special Jesus specs as we walk all the way back through these festivals. And just as a heads up, we will be going through each feast in the order that they appear in Leviticus. However, that won't translate chronologically to how they appear in Jesus' lifetime. We're going to bounce all around the Jesus story, so it won't be chronological as we experience it through Jesus' eyes. Let me get that picture off the screen. So let's talk about Sabbath, all right? Remember for the original audience in a farming-centric culture, they had to work in order to eat. They had to glean all of their grains and fruits and vegetables in order to eat. They didn't pay other people to do it normally. They did it themselves. So it took a substantial amount of trust for them to stop gleaning for an entire day. This was their food and their livelihood. They were forced to trust God, trust in God on that Sabbath, forced to trust that he would provide for them to live. So we too, on this side of the cross, might be tempted to think that we have to work to catch God's eye, to make sure he sees that we're good enough to get in with him, make sure that he's seeing the good work that I'm putting in so that he'll let me in when I breathe my last. Jesus offers the singular provision and path of deliverance from working to earn the favor of God. Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our rest from work. Because Jesus is our Sabbath, we can cease from working to earn favor and celebrate God's gift of favor. Jesus gives us rest from our doing because he did the work for us. So remember, Sabbath is the foundation for all of the other festivals. So let's go back through Passover. So to the original audience hearing these instructions that we talked about a few minutes ago, this feast was a a reminder of protection from death by death. Protection from death by death. The lamb dies so that the firstborn may be protected from death. But remember, we've popped on our Jesus frames, right? So let's jump from the original Passover in Leviticus 23 to Jesus' final Passover on this earth. In his gospel account, John provides a seemingly insignificant timestamp. You would gloss right over it if you weren't careful. An insignificant timestamp that in reality is totally just jaw-dropping. Jesus has been arrested, and he's standing in a Roman court. And then John tells us this in John 19, 14. Now, it was the day of preparation while Jesus is standing there in that court of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, in Roman times... The day started at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour would have been high noon. And verse 14 tells us that this was, also tells us that this was the day of preparation. You can see it there on screen. Do you know what else happened on the day of preparation while Jesus is standing there simultaneously in that court? Just a few hundred yards from where Jesus is standing, himself being prepared for slaughter, just a few hundred yards from there, right at noon, the priests were beginning to slaughter the Passover lambs in the temple in preparation for the upcoming Passover feast that first debuted on the Jewish calendars back in Leviticus 23. So what must must Jesus have thought while he's standing there in arrest, hearing those bleating lambs walking to their deaths? In God's economy, sin deserved wrath, Sin deserved judgment, just like in America's judicial system. Crime is met with punishment, hopefully, right? But instead of punishing his people, he allowed a picture of his wrath to be seen by killing lambs in their place. 
shedding the animal's blood so that their blood didn't have to be shed. The Passover lamb was a substitute for God's people, absorbing the wrath that they deserved. Well, right here, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, timed his own self-sacrifice to coincide with the Passover lambs. He was sentenced to death just as one of those lambs stepped in front of God's wrath to save his people. If you're doubting the Christian claims this morning, or you're struggling to really give any credence to who this Jesus Christ guy was, Consider the unlikeliness, just for a moment, consider the unlikeliness that of all of the days and hours in a year, this is the one that Jesus is condemned to die in. Do you think it was really just a coincidence that this is the day out of 365 that Jesus dies on? No human being has this kind of control of when someone else would kill them. Jesus set the whole thing up. He died on this day on purpose because Jesus is God, y'all. He is God. It was baked in from the beginning of time, way back in Leviticus 23. Jesus, who almost three years earlier, John had called the Lamb of God, was about to be thrown onto the altar of the cross to pay for the sins of his people as a substitute for his people. An echo of Leviticus 23. And there's something else pretty wild here, too. Once your eyes can really sort of focus, the image starts to bubble to the surface. Once again, we see Jesus' jaw-dropping dominion on full display. Jesus controlled with with fine-tuned control. Not just the day that he would die, as staggering as that is, but the actual hour that he would die. John 19.30 says this, When Jesus had received the sour wine, so he's on the cross now, After he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Isn't that interesting how it's phrased there? Jesus didn't just die. It's not what the text says. The text says he gave up, gave up his spirit. Why did he give up when he gave up? Was it just to alleviate his misery? No. Why did he give up when he gave up? Was it just to get the job over with? No. He died when he died so that he might prove that he is God. Let me tell you what I mean. So while Jesus is hanging there between two convicted felons, Pilate sends one of his cronies out with a hammer to shatter each of the men's leg bones. Oftentimes the the soldiers would smash the bones of the crucified to accelerate the dying process. I don't know if it was an extra uh, dose of violence or a, a dose of Uh, mercy to get them to die more quickly. I'm not sure which it was, but if their bones were broken, they couldn't hold their weight up, even on the nails, and prevent them from suffocating. So they would suffocate more quickly if they broke the the bones, uh, the the leg bones of those who were being crucified. Well, here's where things get really crazy, okay? Jesus had already died when they came to break his legs. And you have to wonder why. Why had Jesus already died when they came to break his legs? Was he just wimpier than the other two dudes who were hanging on either side of him? Since, they're, uh, uh, since they still needed their legs to be broken, since they were still living? No way. It wasn't that Jesus was wimpy. Look at John 19, 36. For these things, things meaning his death prior to their breaking his legs, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. 
So somebody in history had written about Jesus, and they said not one of his bones will be broken. Well, what is Jesus fulfilling here? He's fulfilling a text that was penned thousands of years before he ever set foot on the earth. Exodus 12. It, the Passover lamb, shall be eaten, and you shall not break any of its bones. This is why Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Jesus, by handing his body, or by handing his life over, by giving up prior to his bones being broken, he is explicitly claiming to be the final Passover lamb. Think about this. Hanging on any longer to his life would have allowed that Roman hammer to shatter the bones of his leg, driving the final nail into our own spiritual coffins, shattering our own hopes of redemption. Because if one of Jesus' bones is broken, he is clearly not the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb had to be perfect, no brokenness, That is what Jesus is claiming by dying when he died. The perfect, no bones broken Lamb of God come to take the sins, take away the sins of the world. Jesus was the fulfillment and the final sacrifice of Passover. This is why the author of Hebrews says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. At the right hand of God. It was finished. No more sacrifices. Jesus was the final Passover lamb. Okay, we'll pick up the pace here. I promise. That's just the one. We're going to do the six more festivals with our Jesus frames on. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Do you remember back when Jesus fed the 5,000? John 6, 4 tells us that this miracle occurred around the time of Passover. And the next day, which would have been the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus says these words to a gigantic crowd. He says, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Was it a coincidence that Jesus made this claim on the very first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread? No way. Jesus is making radical claims about his identity. Jesus Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of this feast. He sees himself as as God, as the only true bread that satisfies our souls. Next, the Feast of Firstfruits. This is crazy too. Track with me. Jesus dies on the Friday of Passover. That's like our Good Friday. We celebrated that a couple days ago. Then the Festival of Unleavened Bread began the next day on Saturday. That's their Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. And now Firstfruits occurs on Sunday. That's our Easter Sunday. That's today. Today is first fruits. Listen to these words from Paul a number of years later. later. This is beautiful. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So it is like profoundly significant the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. It didn't just so happen that he picked the number three out of a hat and said, All right, I'll raise three days later after I die. It's not that at all. He's rising on first fruits. And so, what's the significance? If you can track back with me, remember, this is the festival where the ancient Jewish priests would wave the first fruits as a way to be, for the people to be accepted by God in anticipation of the coming harvest. In the same way, the sacrifice of our great high priest, of Jesus Christ, was waved before the Father as a guarantee that because of Jesus, we can be accepted by the Father too. It was not happenstance that Jesus got up out of the grave on first fruits. He's showing us that we are accepted by the Father 
on behalf of what he has done for us in his life and the penalty he paid for us in his death. Fourth, the Feast of Weeks. Christ arose on the Feast of Firstfruits, and then, according to Acts 1, he spent 40 days with his disciples. So right after these 40 days, Jesus informs them that it was necessary for him to leave so that the Holy Spirit would come. And he told them not to leave Jerusalem until they received the promise from the Father. They didn't have to wait long. Ten days, in fact. So you've got, he'd been with them for 40 days. Ten days later, you put 40 and 10 together, you get 50. We talked about Pentecost being 50 days after first fruits. It was time for Pentecost. And, and Jews from all different countries were in town to celebrate the completion of the harvest season. And do you know what happened on this day? In Acts 2, the Spirit came. And as Peter was preaching, caused all those present to understand in their own language. And on that day, an enormous harvest was brought into the church, 3,000 souls, the Feast of Weeks. The fifth and sixth festivals, the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. Hebrews 9 makes Jesus' fulfillment of the Day of Atonement explicit. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. Remember those goats that we talked about? But by means of his own blood, he entered not to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, reference to the Day of Atonement. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He entered the holy place and became not only the wrath-bearing sacrifice, but also, also the scapegoat, just like those goats in Leviticus 23. Jesus did both. He has died to satisfy the fierce, fierce wrath of God, and he took our sins away as far as the east is from the west. Finally, the Feast of Booths. Remember, this was like the Christmas of their time, so the town is packed because everyone's home for Feast of Booths. By the time of Jesus, there was just one other key element to this festival that we didn't discuss earlier. So on the final day of this feast, the priest would go to this little pool outside of the city of Jerusalem. And the priest would get water from that pool, and he would walk it in through the city to the temple. And on this day, he would walk past hundreds and hundreds of those little tents from the Feast of Booths, a reminder of the tents in the wilderness when God miraculously provided for them. And then he would pour out water before the Lord in the temple as a sign of thanksgiving. So he'd dump the jar out. And although this water ritual was not prescribed by the Old Testament, its roots go back a few hundred years before Jesus. And so for a whole week, this festival has just been building and escalating and crescendoing to the final point, to their like Christmas day, right? All building up to this. And the, the text doesn't explicitly indicate this, but I wonder, I kind of just wonder if Jesus waited for the moment when the priests re-entered the temple with that jar of water with that symbolic water pitcher. And just before or after the water was poured out, Jesus stands up, the grand finale of the festival. The city is at max capacity, and all the eyes are on Jesus right where they should be. And the whole city has gathered into this one place, and it's into this scene that Jesus speaks these epic words of hope, of renewal, of life. Jesus stands up and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus seizes this moment with the town completely packed, and he infuses it with hope. And the hope he injects into this crowd is an exclusive hope 
If you come in non-Christian today or suspicious uh, about the Bible, I, I, I need us to hear this very uh, clearly. The hope he injects into this crowd is an exclusive hope. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me. Jesus is exclusive here. Life, true life, forever flourishing life is found in one place, one person. Jesus is super clear here. He doesn't provide alternative recipes for eternal life. All religions are not created equal. And that is not heartless bigotry. It's gospel truth from the God-man. When it comes to your soul's thirst, the deep longings and cravings of your heart for belonging in your walk of life, for meaning in this life, for value, for acceptance with God, there is only one place to quench that thirst. And it is in Jesus who says, come to me. Come to me. To come and drink of Jesus means to believe in him. It means to receive who he says who he is. To ingest him as nourishment to quench the thirst of your parched soul. So can all of us in here this morning forever forsake the sad notion that believing in Jesus is merely a boring affirmation of the facts about his life, his death, and his resurrection. No! Belief in Jesus and coming to Jesus is like coming to a spring in the desert when we're dying of thirst. Believing is receiving him like as someone who would be thirsting that much in the desert. It's like water and life for the soul. Some of us here are looking for satisfaction in broken pots that can't hold any water, or at least they can't hold water for long. Every time you tip one of these cups to your lips or to the lips of your soul, you find that satisfaction has somehow slipped from your fingers. It's gone, so you go scrounging for the next option. You're drinking from the well of financial ambition. It's wealth or bust for you. And you will not stop until you're rich, no matter what it costs you, whether it's your family or what it costs you ethically. You're drinking the wrong water. Maybe your heart is overrun with lust, but you keep going back, hoping it will be different this time, more satisfying. No, you're drinking the wrong water. I don't know what it is for you, what water you're tempted to go back to. But this morning, the invitation goes out to all. Everyone in this room has a personal invitation from Jesus himself to come and drink. There's only one condition. You just got to be thirsty. You just got to be thirsty. Are you thirsty? Have you stumbled upon that God-sized vacuum in your soul and wondered what on earth is supposed to fill that? Well, that's just it. Nothing on earth can fill that. It's not supposed to. It's God-sized and God-shaped because only God can fill it through the Son of God, by the power of the Spirit of God. Come and drink and experience the water of Jesus filtering down and seeping into that part of your soul that is untouchable by anything else this world can offer you. Jesus' life-giving water is available to anybody who's thirsty. Won't you come drink today if you've never drunk before? And if you have, Come drink again. It's endless. So in these feasts, do you see the glorious three-dimensional Jesus? 
Jesus in every feast, Jesus baked in to every festival in every Jewish party. He is the culmination of every feast. Just like the, the magic eye images that at first seem meaningless and mundane, Jesus was there the whole time for thousands of years as Leviticus 23 lay on those pages. We didn't know what the culmination was going to be, but we know now. This book isn't just a, a set of facts. The incredible fulfillment of explicit and implicit prophecies over thousands of years prove this book to be authentic and Jesus to be the risen three-dimensional king. So believer, take heart today. You believe in a real risen king. He has risen from the dead and he lives now and intercedes on your behalf to the Father. And if you are not a believer today, we would encourage you to repent and believe. If if this ancient book really prophesied the coming of Jesus, and if Jesus really planned the very hour of his death, and if Jesus really got up out of that grave, then he is God. And if he is God, then he deserves our allegiance, worship, obedience. And here's how Jesus says to do this, to follow him. He says, unless you repent, you'll perish. Repentance is just like this. You're facing this direction, and you turn and face this direction. You just, you turn your back on all that you trusted before, and you say, look, Jesus, you got all my trust. I need you. In Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. Saved? Safe? Safe from what? Saved from God's wrath, do your sin. None of us like to think of ourselves as sinners, but we all know that we are. It's that simple. Repent and believe. Turn to Jesus through belief, and you will be safe, safe from the wrath of God, like those firstborns were safe when the lamb was slaughtered in their place. If that isn't your story today, let's change that. Track me down afterwards, and let's talk. It's beautiful. Second, and the last thing I'll say today, first, repent and believe. Second, gather and party. Gather and party. Our God is not glum, and you shouldn't be either. He enjoys a good party. He commanded his people to party, and he wants us to, too. That's what Leviticus 23 is all about. A whole year's worth of parties thrown in God's honor. Every Passover lamb that was ever sacrificed is still dead. Bones rotting in some hole right now. But our Passover lamb, our Christ, our Jesus, he ain't dead. He's alive. There ain't some bones in a hole somewhere. Why should the bars get naming rights to happy hour? Man, 10 a.m. in this room every week, especially this week, ought to be the happiest of hours. He is alive, and because he is, we can live forever with him too. Will you pray with me? As I pray, baptizees, y'all can come up. Lord, thank you that even before Jesus set foot on this earth, you had baked his story into a text written thousands and thousands of years ago. It strengthens our faith. It surprises us. It encourages us. I pray that you would help us embrace this reality this day, this week, and all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.